So we're uh, keeping up with uh, the theme of peace on earth. The idea being that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, and He came to earth as such, and He brings uh, peace and reconciliation to the point where peace and reconciliation was most needed, and that was our need to be reconciled to God. And because we have been reconciled to God, then we ought also to be reconciled to one another. We have a peace within us, and so that peace within us, peace with God, should flow out of us to be peacemakers, peace with one another, and peace on earth. And so that's how we should be recognized. And so that's, that's the idea of what we're talking about here. And, um, and we want to continue that theme. So today we're going to look at, as I've already said at the uh, opening, Psalm 32. And we'll look at the uh, first seven verses of Psalm 32. It's short, and so I think we can, we can all read it together. So let's, let's do that. Uh, let's read it together. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. God, be gracious to your people today by speaking to them through the preaching of your word. Be gracious to me by allowing me to be the instrument that you use to do so. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we see this word blessed or blessed in the text. And I'll open with a Bible trivia question. Does anyone know, or who knows, and you can say it kind of out loud, what that word blessed, or another word maybe for that word blessed that appears in Scripture? Probably, but not the one I had in mind. Happy, that's right. That word is happy, or another word for the word that appears here, blessed, is also happy. And that, that word for blessed or blessed or happy um, goes a little further than the way that we tend to use the word happy. When we, when we think about happy, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is happy meal. But, you know, uh, but I think that that grabs the, uh, the, the, sometimes the shallowness of what we think of when we think of happy, right? It's just a little kid's thing. You know, they get a little burger and they get a toy. 
with the thing. Uh, most of the time we just, you know, that superficial feeling that you, that you get uh, is what we think about when we think about the word happy. But we're not just talking about that superficial feeling of happiness when the Bible uses the word happy or blessed. Uh, the, this, this happiness in Hebrew, E-S-E-R is the way we would spell it, is a joyful state of mind. And so it's kind of a deep-seated happiness that supersedes our circumstances. So it's not some kind of superficial feeling that we get because of our circumstances, but it's something that goes deeper down than our circumstances. And so we could say that it's a happiness sometimes in spite of our circumstances, or it's a, it's a deep-seated happiness that is not uprooted or disturbed because of our circumstances. And, and this is actually the way that Ju Jesus uses this word uh, in what we know as the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11 is where we find the Beatitudes, and let's listen to those. Blessed or happy, same thing, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are hun who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for th they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Look at these circumstances. None of them mentioned are things that would bring happiness, poor in spirit, mourning, meek or subdued, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. If you are being merciful, it's because you've endured some type of offense. The pure in heart, peacemakers involved in conflict, uh, those who are persecuted and those who are reviled. None of these are circumstances where one would expect to get a happy feeling. But this happiness, again, is a deeper-seated happiness that is not based on present circumstances. And here's the thing. This deep-seated happiness is based on eternal truths. Did you see that in the Beatitudes? The, the reason that it is blessed to be poor in spirit is because the eternal truth behind that is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kind of happiness that David is referencing in Psalm 32. And note that this happiness is also based on eternal truths. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you notice the, those eternal truths? So this happiness is based not on present circumstances, but on these eternal truths. So that first happiness is based on forgiven sins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. 
And think about that. What a blessed eternal truth that transcends all other circumstances, right? Regardless of what circumstances that we may find ourselves in, there is a deep-seated joy and happiness over the fact that we have been forgiven our sins by the Lord. The text doesn't say happy is the one who has an abundance of wealth or happy is the one who never faces difficulty or who is not presently facing difficulty. Rather, it is blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven by the Lord. And this is an incredible blessing that is simple, but sometimes I think that we take it for granted, don't we? That our sins have been forgiven. The worst thing that could happen to a human could happen, and that does not disturb in any way the eternal truth that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven my sin. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? An, an incredible truth. And think of it in, in the other way. Think of what it would be like if our sins were not forgiven. We could have the most comfortable circumstances. We could have pleasant and ideal situations in our life. We could have abundant wealth or all that our hearts could long for. But there would not be true blessedness or happiness. And I think that there is a multitude of testimony of rich and famous people who would tell us that. Think of the tragic lives of the rich and famous who do not know the joy of sins forgiven. It's almost like their life is a living hell because they have everything that they thought would bring happiness and it brings no happiness. It's only fleeting. It's only fading. And so there is a deep-seated happiness that, that, it, that comes along with the eternal truth that our sins are forgiven, forgiven. But the text goes even further. It tells us that happiness is based on the eternal truth that the Lord does not count sin against those who are forgiven. And that does go a little further. This is, this is a, again, a glorious truth. The perfectly just God of all creation, not only does He forgive sin, but He does not count sins against those who are forgiven. And I know that some of you folks have read your Bible and you're thinking this through and you're thinking, how can this be? And you'd be right to ask, how can it be that God can forgive but then also not count those sins against the person that He forgives? How can God be just and not count sins against those that have sinned? And think about it, just using a practical illustration if I committed a heinous crime the person that I offended or the victim they may find it in their heart to forgive me of the crime that I had for, that I had committed against them right but just because they forgave me of that crime does not let me off the hook those crimes are still counted against me and I have to pay for the punishment of those crimes. So forgiveness is not payment. But the Lord, He forgives us, but He also does not count those sins against us. So how is justice done? And this, of course, I think you can see is where the psalm points clearly to the gospel. Everyone has sinned against God, both by who they are by nature because of the fall of Adam and Eve, 
and by what they have done in their deeds. They have sinned against God a multitude of times. But for those who trust him for salvation, God forgives them. And he does not count their sins against them. And it is because the punishment that was due our sin does that was due our sin was poured out on Christ at the cross. Do you understand that? That the reason that the Lord does not count our sins against us and he is still just to do so is that he punished Christ instead of us. So he punished Christ for our sins. And then to prove to everyone that he in fact accepted Christ's atoning sacrifice, he raised Jesus from the dead. It was accomplished at Calvary and the exclamation point was placed on it at the resurrection. And there is something astonishing about this text and that is that David, he saw that. He looked beyond the ceremonial cleansing that was offered through the old covenant And he saw the truth of imputed righteousness. That the Lord does not count sins against those he forgives. So it is is powerful and astonishing that David saw this truth. David saw this truth. As a matter of fact, Paul recognized that David saw this truth. And he uses it, part of this text at least, in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I'll read that to you. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul uses this. He recognizes that David saw this to show that God has always counted sinners righteous By grace alone, through faith alone. In a way, we could say that David with Abraham saw the Lord's day and rejoiced in it. And what I'm actually getting at here, I know that there's some themes that could be traced out there. But what I'm really getting at for in light of this text is that this truth that God does not count sin against those who are forgiven is a timeless truth. It's something that went beyond David's time, something that he saw well into the future, a benefit that we are rejoicing in today. But it is a timeless truth or an eternal truth that supersedes any present or external circumstances. It is a deep-seated, blessed happiness. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven and for those, uh, unhappy are those against whom God does not count their sin. And I think that we can see how we can roll that application right on over to, to us who live on this side of the cross. Our sins are forgiven. And the Lord does not count them against us. Listen to this famous passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 that that tell us that remind us of this glorious truth therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from god 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So peace and happiness then for the Christian comes from the fact that our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. And I exclaim this morning, this is an exceeding blessedness that we ought not ever forget. We need to be reminded of it all the time. But here's the thing. Sometimes Christians, those whose sins are forgiven, those against whom God does not count their sins, those who have been reconciled to God, sometimes Christians are not the happiest people, are they? No one says amen. <laughs> but it's true. It's just, the, it's just the, what ought to be and what is is in conflict. Christians sometimes are not the happiest people. And the reality is that there are some Christians who are just downright miserable. And I'm sure that you have, you've never been one of those, but you have encountered uh, <laughs> folks like that before, right? We can be, they can be, I can be isolated, withdrawn, argumentative, confrontational in a negative sense, driven by what other people think, judgmental, whiny, complaining, selfish, and, and the list can go on. And, 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 we, and we have to admit that, there are, that Christians are like that, and, and I think even more so we have to admit that sometimes we can be like that. Isn't, isn't that right? So, so what's that, I mean, like this glorious truth that of the gospel that our sins are forgiven, that the Lord has counted, that has punished, has taken the punishment that is due us for our sin and has poured it out on Jesus Christ and we live without condemnation, that's blessed are we, happy are we, but sometimes we're not the happiest people. And I know that maybe there's a, a lot of reasons why that is the, the case, but why are Christians not just the happiest people in the world? And I think that there's a hint, if not an outright answer, in that closing phrase of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this brings me to the next point. That this blessed happiness and concealed sin are incompatible. Sometimes the reason why we do not have this deep-seated happiness is because of concealed sin. There is deceit in our spirit. And notice 
that David does not say in whom there is no sin. Right? Because if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. Right? We, we do. And so if he says happy are those who don't have sin, then that would explain it. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> it wouldn't explain why anybody's happy at all. But there is, he doesn't say that. Rather, he says, in whom there is no deceit or in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so this, this, uh, the psalm or, or the psalmist is referencing sin that is deceitfully concealed. That's what he's talking about, in whom there is no deceit. So those are happy when they are not deceitfully concealing sin. And so this blessed happiness is not only found in sins forgiven and atoned for, but also in sins that are not deceitfully concealed. And sometimes that is the source. Many times, I should say, that is the source of the Christian's unhappiness or unblessedness. And what is another way of describing deceitfully concealed sin? Unconfessed sin right? That's, that's what it is. Another way of describing sin that has deceitfully been concealed is sin that we pretend like we haven't committed. We don't confess it. And, and so many Christians, and I would even say that perhaps some of us here today don't know this deep and contented peace and happiness because we have unconfessed sin in our lives. Your sins have been atoned for by Christ. You said amen five minutes ago. You're, you, you know that that is the truth. So why are you unhappy? You attempt to conceal your sin. You're unwilling to be open and vulnerable before God and before God's people. And, and before you think, well, you're just being hypocritical and judgmental, uh, I will tell you that I am often in the same boat. For some foolish reason, I, we get to thinking that we can hide sin from God or that we don't have to confess that particular sin to God because maybe we have downplayed the atrocity of it or, or whatever it is, but, but we can seal it. And it creates a disturbance in our spirit. And you, we know who we are. You know who you are. And you know which sins I'm talking about this morning. You know the point in the sermons that Dale preaches. And maybe even I preach when you get uncomfortable. Or the times in small group when you clam up. And you get defensive when somebody says something. First let me say that you never really... You never actually conceal sin. I mean, right? We believe in the omniscience of God. Guess what? God knows. He's, he sees everything and He knows everything. So you can never really conceal sin. But also, let me say, you will never experience this true and deep and blessed happiness while trying to Conceal sin, because concealed sin and true blessedness are incompatible. Don't believe me? 
Let's look at the text further and see how David describes his dilemma when he kept silent about his sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat, as by the heat of summer. So David describes the blessed state of those who are reconciled to God, but then he brings this contrast into the psalm. A contrast of physical and spiritual anguish. Physical and spiritual anguish that he appears to have experienced himself. He describes a deep physical anguish that he felt deep down. I think that's what he means when he says, My bones wasted away like an aching deep down in the marrow of my bones. There was an anguish. His conscience was plaguing him as he groaned all through the day. He knew he had sinned. There was something deep down that was crying out, you have sinned, you need to confess. He felt the heavy hand of God's fatherly displeasure and he is spiritually and physically weakened like he had been laboring all day in the middle of the summer heat. And you know the difference. You know why there's a contrast between the, between the way things ought to be and the way things are for the psalmist. He tells us in, in the opening of verse 3, he says, I kept silent. That's the dilemma. There is the dilemma. This is the source of the anguish that made blessed happiness disappear from David's life. There was deceit in his spirit. He, was, he had sinned and he was pretending like he hadn't. He knew that he had, but he was acting like he didn't. He kept silent. He concealed his sin by, by failing to confess it to the Lord. And perhaps failing to confess it to the others he needed to confess it to. And I have it in my notes to ask you this, but I already know the answer. Have you ever felt like this before? Can you identify with David when he says, My bones wasted away. My conscience was groaning out all day long. I felt like the hand of the Lord was just pressing down on me. I felt like my strength was gone. We've been there. Some of you may, may feel this way now. And, and I just want to remind you, I don't think that I'm telling you anything new. If you feel this way right now, I just want to tell you that it's very possible that you are suffering the consequences of concealing sin, of not opening up to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters in Christ and confessing your sin. But there's something else that I think before we need to move on, we need to acknowledge. And that is, it is ultimately God is the one that is working to bring us to confession and blessed happiness. David acknowledges it when he says, your hand was heavy upon me. And it's important for us to know this. Because in our anguish, sometimes we feel like God is against us. And I think that the Lord even allows a, a sense of that. Feeling like God is against us. Your hand was heavy upon me. I felt like I was being pressed down. 
But, it's, but that feeling of discomfort is, is momentary for the ultimate work of that blessed happiness that the Lord is trying to get us to. Do you see that? And so the Lord's not being bad to us, even though it feels like he's being bad to us. The Lord is being good to us. God is working to bring true happiness to believers. God's doing it. It wasn't the devil who was working against David, even though it might have felt like that. Sometimes, sometimes I think like, you know, the devil is doing his thing and, and, uh, and I'm like, you know, man, the devil's really been fighting me. And he's like, huh? Me? You know what I mean? Like, we blame the devil sometimes for, for things that, that he, ain't, he ain't doing. <laughs> oh, sorry. And uh, so, uh, so, I mean, the devil, it wasn't the devil. He's not the one that's working against David here. And I'm, and I'm sure that David did have a guilty conscience that was plaguing him. But that ultimately wasn't what was causing the anguish and anxiety in his life. Ultimately, it was God. God wouldn't let him go. God wouldn't let him live in unconfessed sin. He wouldn't let him carry on in that state of disturbed happiness by sweeping his sin under the rug. God pressed his hand heavily upon David for the purpose that David would confess his sin and know this true and blessed happiness. There's a word that we have for that nowadays, and it's called conviction. Right? It's, it's not a popular word anymore, but it's still a true word and a, tr and a reality. And it's the same now as it was then. God brings conviction in our lives when we conceal sin... And he does so by his spirit and by his word, right? In this instance, the work of the spirit in David's life felt like anguish. It felt like the heavy hand of God pressing down upon him. This was not a psychological anguish. This was a capital S, spiritual anguish. It is something that the spirit is working in David's life, the Holy Spirit from whom no sin can be concealed, pressed upon David and made him feel the anguish and deceit of his own sin. And, and we know that the Spirit always works with the Word, does He not? Think of how the way in which David was exposed when he sinned against God with his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then the, the subsequent murder of Uriah. We see David in that narrative doing some things to try to cover that up, right? I mean, that's even what the whole murder of Uriah was about, was covering up his adulterous affair that resulted in pregnancy. But how was David exposed? He was exposed by the word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan. It was the word of the Lord. So that's how the Spirit works in our life. He convicts us. We feel like the Spirit, or I should say the Spirit, makes us feel like the Lord is pressing heavily upon us. And then the Word of the Lord comes to confront us with our sin. And, and I think then that this speaks clearly to us that the secret of spiritual development and the secret of living in this blessed happiness in Jesus is a humble and obedient response 
to God's word. When the word of God confronts you with sin, confess it. Repent of it. Don't, don't live in the anguish of concealing that sin. Humbly respond and obediently respond to God's word. The way to wholeness and happiness in spite of life circumstances is by the work of the Spirit and the Word of God convicting us and leading us to confess our sins. This is where this blessedness comes from. And I think too that it is appropriate here that we recall what we have learned about confessing our sins in the last few weeks. I'm not going to cover it all, obviously. But some of the things that stood out to me uh, true conviction through the work of the Word and the Spirit will bring about more than that worldly sorrow that we talked about in small group last week. Remember, we talked about the distinction between uh, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Rather, true conviction will bring about godly sorrow and and. Godly sorrow brings about true, heartfelt admission of our sins before God and to others as necessary. And we learn that our confessions will have a sense of, of being specific, that we won't just confess general sins, but when our hearts have been stirred up by the Spirit and we are responding to the work of the Spirit and the Word of God in our lives, then we are confessing specific sins to one another. I sinned against you in this way. Right? So we're not just kind of waxing over and say, forgive me, brother, that I, I have sinned against you, but I have sinned against you in this way. And, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but Look at uh, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So iniquity, sin, and transgression are ways that the uh, Scripture references sin in general. But there are specific uh, attributes of those sins or the way those things are worded. Sin, iniquity, transgressions. David differentiates between those three. And I think what he's getting at is he is making a full confession of all the types of sins that he has committed. And that's what full conviction and confession will look like to us. It won't just be general or whitewashed. Uh, but when we are truly convicted of our sin, then we will confess specifically and we will make full confession if possible, of the types of sins that we have committed. And then one more point of practical application before I move to the next point. Remember the way that we confess our sin is determined largely by the way, by the kind of sin we have committed and who we have sinned against. Right? First, there is secret sin that is between you and God alone. And so, confession is in secret between you and and God alone. But there are also private sins committed against another person. And that often leads to conflict in that relationship. And that's where confession needs to be made not only to God, but it also needs to be made to the person or people that have been offended by that sin. And then third, there are public sins. 
Sins that are committed against a group, a community, a, a whole congregation, and so on. And since the sin has affected the entire group, the confession should also be made to this entire group. And this is how God works in us. He presses us with conviction and brings about spiritual anguish and conviction, which leads to full and appropriate confession. Remember, dear ones, God's aim is not ultimately anguish, right? God's not just up there wanting to make his people miserable. That's not the way God works. But if our misery, temporary misery, will lead to blessed happiness, God will allow that in our lives. He certainly will. Because God is not out for our temporal well-being. God is out for our spiritual and eternal well-being. And that is what happens with David and, and why he makes the exclamation that he opens the psalm with. It is a blessed happiness that we see in verse 5 as David exclaims with joy, You forgave my sin. And look at verses 5 through 7. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. These these. Passages take on a much happier tone than verses 3 and 4. We're not talking about anguish of soul and anguish in the marrow of the bones, but, but rather we are exclaiming forgiveness of sins. And we all know the difference, don't we? David broke his silence. He says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin. Do you see the contrast? I kept silent and my bones wasted away. I acknowledged my sin and you forgave me. It is through the confession of sin that David finds the joy and happiness of sins forgiven. And listen to this, not only did David find forgiveness, but the very God who pressed heavily upon him because of his sin is also the one who forgave his sins because that was his intent in the first place. We can even look at how David's perspective has changed from verse 3 and 4 to verses 6 and 7. David said those who do, do not keep silent in prayer are protected from the raging floodwaters. The floodwaters will rise up, but they will not overflow those whose sins are forgiven. They find refuge in the Lord. And listen to this. He surrounds them with shouts of deliverance. I love that. They, have, they are on every side. They are hearing shouts of deliverance. The Lord has delivered me. The Lord's strong hand has delivered me. The Lord has protected me. The Lord has saved me. The Lord is my salvation all around. He is surrounded with shouts of deliverance. This sounds like a much more happy and blessed circumstance than what we see in verses 3 and 4. They have found the secret to true blessedness, true happiness. 
What a joy to know that we have ultimately been reconciled to God through forgiveness of sin and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But not only that, further than that, what a further joy to know that we can know a true, that we can experience regularly a true and blessed happiness that supersedes any difficult circumstance when we remain open and honest before the Lord and before one another. Don't you want to live a happy Christian life? Don't you know, you, we know those folks who just seem so contented and happy. And you can look back in your life and remember a time when you were contented and happy. And there's something yearning within you now for that. Can I tell you that that can be the regular state of your Christian experience? And I'm not saying that you want more, and I'm not saying that there will not be difficulties, but what I am saying that in the midst of that mourning, in the midst of those difficulties, there can be a deep-rooted happiness in your life that cannot be shaken by those present circumstances. And a very huge part of the equation is our living openly, humbly, and honestly before the Lord and before one another. If we're honest, and, and we should be, because it's kind of the whole point of the sermon, all of us can identify with the practice of con concealing sin and the anguish that follows. And why do, why do we do that? Sometimes we buy into the lie that our happiness depends on how we appear before others, right? Our image. I mean, think about social media. People are constantly putting stuff out there that does not reflect reality. And, and, we, and we buy into that. We think we can be, be happy by winning the approval of others rather than desiring to please God. Sometimes we'd rather have man's blessing and approval instead of God's forgiveness. And we show it by concealing our sin. And it results... In hiding sin and, 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 and it creates something ugly within us. And, and you know what else it does? It creates an ugly church culture where there is little grace for folks struggling with sin. Oh, we may be quick to give grace to the unregenerate or even to the new convert. But little grace is extended often in this kind of culture to the repenting brother or sister in the Lord. And can I say that? May we shun such a culture and strive to be that happy community that is open and humble before the, humble before the Lord and before one another. And this is, this is where this struck me. That may this church culture be the voices of shouts of deliverance for those who are struggling with sin, right? Here I am struggling with sin. I'm feeling the anxiousness of, of soul. But I hear Jason say, the Lord delivered me from my sin. And I hear Al say, the Lord helped me as I struggled for sin. And I hear Brian say, God has been good to me. He lifted me up out of the pit. And so as I'm struggling with sin, there's voices of deliverance all around me that encourage me to be open and humble before the Lord and to confess my sin. And find the happiness that I hear in those shouts of deliverance. May it be so for us. Let's pray.
God, you are truly good to us. Oh, how good you are to us. One of the ways that you are good to us is that you make it feel like sometimes that you are against us. We feel your heavy hand pressed down upon us. Lord, because we, we make a, a strange attempt to hide sin from you. We try to sweep it under the rug. We don't confess it. We don't make reconciliation. We don't make peace where we're supposed to. And Lord, because of your goodness, you stir our hearts up. You convict us. You make us feel the anguish and the deceit of that sin. And then, Lord, you lead us to confess the sin. You confront us with your word that exposes our sin and, and leaves us no hiding place. And so we confess and then that blessedness, that happiness, that deep-seated happiness comes back to our lives. And Lord, sadly, the reality is that you do this, sadly, on our behalf, that you do this over and again. But help us, Lord. Help us to be a people and help this to be a, a culture where we are constantly confessing and repenting of our sin and confessing to one another when that, when that is necessary. Being open and humble so that this will be a place where there is a multitude of shouts of deliverance surrounding those who have been forgiven of sin. And we pray it in Christ's name and all of God's people